otherwise we're prone to give in to the temptations of the flesh. What's it doing? It's crouching at the door. In the flesh is this, this thing we are identifying as sin. It wants to rule over us. Hello, my name is Joe Durso, and this is That They Might Know. This episode from the Roman Revelation series is entitled, Christ Dies So That We Might Live. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. I thank you for the word. We are nothing without the word. We walk in the dark without light. We walk without understanding, without wisdom, without knowledge in the world without the word. We have a conscience. We have reason. We can live our lives and we can fumble through our lives led about by this sinful flesh that binds us to disobedience and rebellion. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you would make these things explicitly clear as you have already through your written word. I pray these things for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When Paul began his thoughts in chapter 7, he brought to light the binding effect the law has upon a person as long as the person lives. There is a need, therefore, for all those who know the law to die to be released from the first covenant. And it's, under, it's very important to understand that the basis of the first covenant was obedience to God. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 3 tells us this. Concerning the first covenant, we read these words. Then, quote, Moses came and reported to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, quote, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do, end quote. You know, I doubt that there is a, a falser word ever spoken than those words. I mean, glaring in their face is a law that cannot be kept. And their answer, oh, we're going to do it. And man, they, they failed like all the world fails. I mean, just, just unbelievably. At the second giving of the law, it was a harsh word spoken by God and Moses concerning the behavior of the children of Israel. We read about that, and you can read about it in Deuteronomy 27 through 34. I recommend taking those chapters, seven chapters, go over them repeatedly. But in verse 20, in chapter 29, verses 2 to 4, we read these words, quote, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, and this is Moses, we have God's direct words to Moses, and then we have Moses' words to the children of Israel. So this is after 40 years in the wilderness, Moses speaking to the people that he leads. And he says, quote, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. 
Now, I got to tell you, Moses was, in fact, a true Calvinist. It matters not what miracles are observed by unbelievers. The only thing that matters is what God changes in the human heart. Therefore, in Romans 7, 1 through 4, Paul discusses death in Christ as the means of coming out from under the covenant of the law. As a man is bound to a woman and the woman is set free by death of the man, even so believers are set free by the death of Christ and us in him. We're in Christ, we're set free through his death and resurrection. So I just want to, I just want to, you know, I make a joke by saying Moses was a true Calvinist. But I want to underscore this, that unless the Lord give a person a heart to know and a eyes to see and ears to see, hear, unless God does that within the heart of a person, the person is left rebellious, in sin, broken, not what he was meant to be by God at creation, just a sinful person. And it's necessary that we consider these things carefully. In verse 6, we're further told of chapter 7 of Romans, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. It is life in the Spirit who empowers the believer to live by faith in Christ, through whom we are given new life, here and now. The just shall live by faith, repeated over and over in the scriptures. The following chapters, 7, 7 through 13, the apostle lays down very important information that leads us up to a very well-known passage by many in 14, verses 14 to 25. What we can, what we can't do. But it's really regarding the Christian's battle with sin. A, f- a passage I feel is probably probably the most badly understood in the Bible, and a very important one indeed with regards to personal holiness. So before, we're not going to get in this episode, verses 14 to 25, but we're leading up to it. Very important to understand what's being said, particularly in chapters 5, 6, and 7, up to verse 13. And I quote verses 7 to 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Far from it. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came to life, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, Did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Far be it. Rather, it was sin 
in order that it might be known to be sin by bringing about my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. At this point, this is a confusing passage. Sometimes the Word of God, which is it's always clear, it can be confusing to the natural mind, to the natural man. It's like ununderstandable. But to, even to Christians, immature, unstudied, not spending the time in the seat to, to battle through the Word of God, and we have to battle through because sin is still part of the equation, even though in the life of a believer, it's not the same anymore. Because for a believer, and you're going to always be hearing me repeat this, he is a new creation in Christ. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Every part of us is being touched by the gospel, by the grace, by the love of God, if you're in Christ. So as we, as we look at this, I want to keep this in mind, that there's a, a confusion in the passage that Paul is pointing to in the minds of people, preparing for verses 14 to 25, the confusion between the law, the flesh, the new man, the old man, the new covenant, the old covenant, all of these things working together, and we need to siphon through them and put them in their right order, in their, in their right place. So what I want to do is I want to look at this word sin first of all. He uses it repeatedly in this passage, and it's almost always used the same way. Sin is the word harmartia, is the word that he uses in, in the Greek. And basically, that word sin in the Greek is no share, no part, a loss, and a forfeiture because a person missed the mark. Shoot the arrow, miss the target, you miss the mark, you forfeit something, you lose, you don't win. Sin is the loss of our place with God. We lost God in the, God in the garden and every day since. Because we are separate from God. We are all naturally in a state of decline. We were separated. We're a race. He goes through this in chapter one, 5. In chapter 5, he explains that we're one human race, no matter how many nations there have been since Babel, and God added an additional curse. There's one human race. All go back to the person of Adam, broken, you know, at the flood, and then you have Noah, all go back to Noah, who Noah then goes back to Adam. We all go back to Adam, and in that fallen race, there is this genetic sin that's passed on. But in every generation, in every individual person's life, they come to a place where they make choices. And we have the seed of rebellion within us, but we also have the ability to make choices. And we all choose to sin. We are all independently found guilty before God because of the choices that we make. And because of the choices, because of the rebellion, rebellion in our hearts, because of the hatred that we have for God, clearly spoken in Romans chapter 3, I mean, there are none who seek after God, none who love God, and in other passages, all about hatred and rebellion. Because of that, we forfeit the power of God, the presence of God, 
the holiness of God, the righteousness of God that is meant to live through us like water passing through a pipe. Clean, clear, powerful, life-giving. We give it all away because of sin. S-I-N. At the center of sin is the letter I. I is at the center of it all. The gospel has made tremendous inroads into the world system. It has created democracies as where it's touched and where it's gone. It has brought humanitarian help to a sinful planet. However, over the course of the last couple hundred years, although it's been working a lot longer than that, and I'm talking about against the gospel, the world as a whole has been increasingly rejecting the gospel message of God. And therefore, let us remember the words of the Apostle Paul, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years, and what I'm talking about at an individual level is always true. Right now, I'm kind of pointing to its cultures and nations, groupings of people, and how we think collectively. You can take a, a collective, a group of people, and you can take that people, and you can, those people can adapt the gospel message. They can be religious. They can go to church. They can adhere to the teachings of the gospel to a point. It's not a saving point. It's just in order to get along with the culture point. And that's what's been done, particularly in the West, but also in the East, in most parts of the world, all the parts the gospel is touched and has been received. There has been a Christian message and there has been the, the Christianity as a, as a teaching has affected people, not as individuals, not as all, all individuals, but collectively as a group. And it has brought about a change in the world from heathen, pagan nations which just existed before Christ and even more so before the giving of the Lord Israel. And in, in all those nations, I mean, just, just read history and see the savage way that people have behaved. But Paul said that in re regarding the latter days, regarding this gospel message that's gone out throughout all the world, he says, quote, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 to 7, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanders, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, Haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such people as these. For among them are those who slip into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And you want to sum up all of what I just said in the various sins in connection with nations that have been tempered, that have been changed, modified, whatever word we want to use, by the gospel message. And he concludes that section by saying, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And there you have it. So it's affected the way people relate to one another to a degree, but where it really matters, 
in saving the soul, in converting the heart, in transforming the heart, so that in, as in Hebrews 8 and 10, where, Paul, where uh, the writer to Hebrews is speaking about the new covenant, he said it's written on the mind, it's placed within the heart. That's what the new covenant does. It changes a person from the inside out instead of from the outside only. Just before the message that Paul delivers us from chapter 7, verses 7 to 13, there is this point that he makes in verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now this is an extremely important point. We do not, a person who is born again, who has been given a new heart by God, by looking at Jesus, looking at the cross, looking at the sacrifice that God made in sending his son, in becoming a man, in this thing we call the Trinity, which is beyond comprehension. Father and Son competed sharing together in order to bring about the salvation of lost individuals. When we look at that, a person becomes saved, and they receive that, they become saved, and he gives a person a new heart, a new being, a new mind, starts to renovate everything. Well, there is this matter of, but now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter, because why? Because we're not bound to the law anymore. Now at this point, being bound to the law sounds like a bad thing. It can, can play with a person's mind. So what the law did this to me. And Paul is contending with that. And he contends with it clearly in, in verse 7, when he says, what shall we say then? Is the law, sin. Crazy. Almost sounds crazy the way it's, it's worded. And it's the furthest thing from crazy because sin does that to us. It perverts things. And it's going to look at the law as though the law is to blame. That's what evil people do. They do evil and then they blame it on others. I mean, I don't. this is very clear if you just have the eyes to observe what goes on in this life. Bad people, which we all are by nature, some people really get it honed down to a science of doing evil things and then taking and blaming some other. And even, even everyday normal people, not, not as a profession, but as just going through life, you know, you have conflicts with people and you blame the other person. And this is the way it works. So in verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, God forbid, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The very purpose of the law is to identify the true culprit. And it is not the law. So what then is the cause of our sin? Verse 8. But sin taking an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. What, what does that mean? Sin, number one, and this is where we have to focus our attention. Sin is the culprit. 
not the law. The law points to the sin, and when we see the law, we might go, no, I'm not doing that. That's rebellion. You know, don't tell me what to do. That's sin doing that, not the law. The law is good. I mean, thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, you know the pain it causes a spouse when adultery takes place? How about hatred? I mean, is there anything more horrible than murder? But Paul is going to put the blame where the blame should be. He's going to put the blame on sin. Sin is the culprit, not the law. The law brings sin to light, but sin is the problem. And that's why he says, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment. And the word opportunity actually means a launching pad. Means it's kind of like a plate that they usually use. I don't know if they still do on mortars. My father was a mortar man in World War II. And you take the plate, you put it down, you put the mortar on top of it, you take the rocket that they would drop in, and before that's how it gets launched, it drops through the pipe, hits the plate, and it goes off. And then where it lands, it explodes and it kills people. And that's war. But the plate is essential for the rocket to launch. Sin, being the launch pad, being the gun, which uh, the bullet doesn't go anywhere without the gun, that not only sends it out, but also focuses where it's going to go, the delivery. Sin, taking opportunity, being the launch pad, being the gun, through the commandment, through the commandment. The commandment isn't the problem. The law isn't the problem. God's desires and his will is not the problem. No, uh, sin is the problem. So in this way, we, we can look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, where we read, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry. And his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Within us lies this beast, this brute, that has no regard for good and evil, has no regard for God's law or God's will, has no regard only for its own selfish, self-centered, proud way. So here are two men, both given a command, go out and offer me an animal sacrifice. Cain brings vegetables. It's things from the garden. Abel goes out, kills an animal, brings it to God. Cain gets angry. What's Cain angry about? All Abel did was what God told him to do. He was actually being obedient. You were being disobedient. So God says to him, why are you angry? Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? That's right. When a person is doing what they should be doing, whether they realize it or not. I mean, who doesn't feel guilt after doing something wrong? But when you do something right, generally, unless the person's really perverted, you feel good. Some people actually feel good about doing evil, just showing the hardened condition of that person's heart. Generally, we all start evil, but not completely evil. 
We, we start with a conscience. We start with reason that tells us the difference between right and wrong. We have to get hard over life or through culture that comes and presses in. But the ability to be hard, the ability to be evil is there. It's within the heart. So God concludes, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, like a snake getting ready to strike with its horrible venom. And its desire for you, its sin, its desire, it, it wants to rule over you. Now that's over the conscience part. That's over the part that still has an idea of what's right and what's wrong. See, man is a complicated machine. He fell in the garden uh, in a naive state. And in the process of this, in the process, God is working in men to understand good and evil, right from wrong, the manner of choices that he makes. In this process, God, to those who receive his offer of salvation, transforms them that heart, places within that heart all the law of God to do what is right as previously said. And so therefore, but you must master it. Now you can try to master it in the flesh. That's not going to happen. Or you can receive Christ as Lord and Savior and then walk in the Spirit, which is the better option. And this is what Paul is shooting for, and this is what he's making us known, not only in verses 7 to 13, but then 14 to 25. But sin taking opportunity, sin, Sin, that same word, harmatia in the Greek, is the brand of sin that emphasizes its self-originated, self-empowered nature. Sin that emphasizes, the word sin here is emphasizing its self-originated, self-empowered nature. It is not originated by the empower of God through faith. It's not about faith. It's about this working up to do what's right. And that's why people avoid salvation in Jesus Christ because they don't want to admit sin. They don't want to admit they're evil. They don't want to admit that they will go to hell. They want to consider themselves good. And unless God bring light to the mind and to the will and to the heart as a whole, man is lost and cannot save himself. Paul then goes on in verse 9 and says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. This statement Paul makes two times, also in verse 11, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. He wants to make this clear in this portion. For sin taking an opportunity. Sin came to life and I died. So let us think through this portion from the beginning of Romans right through where we are quickly. In chapters 1 through 3, we are sinners by our ability to reason, by our conscience, and by the law. So in chapters 1 through 3, we are identified as sinners, as a race, and individuals. We're identified as sinners. In chapter 4, we're justified apart from the law. We are made right with God by the promise, a promise made to Abraham 
and experiences by all those who are of the faith of Abraham. In chapter 5, 6 and 7, 1 through 13, we exercise sanctifying faith by which we live out the reality of our salvation. Chapter 5, identification with Christ, is first discussed. Paul explains that while we were all sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He proceeds to show that one man's sin and as a result, the entire race in Adam was lost. In chapter 6, Paul brings us into the realm of God's sanctifying work, through which we exercise saving faith to the saving of our present condition. We become committed to the doctrines through which we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. We reckon ourselves dead by faith in the finished work of Christ. In chapter 7, we were joined to the law by the first covenant, which means if we keep the law, we shall live. But no one can or wants to, so by the law all men die. However, we were set free from the law through the death of Christ, so we might be joined to another, even him who was raised from the dead. Identification in Christ, therefore, becomes the main theme of Paul's teaching. Identification is that element of salvation by which people are placed into Christ. God the Father does not see us. God the Father sees Christ. It's a sacrificial death that he died. So therefore, he took our place. Our sins were placed upon him. When he rose from the dead, his righteousness is given to us. That's identification. Now that's the, the whole, the hard part to get, but it, it's the essential to understanding the gospel re, with regarding self, sanctification or the process that takes place by which God changes us into his likeness. So he's repeating this statement, as I've stated, in verses 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin became alive and I died. Sin became alive and I died. Which I is that? Verse 11, for sin taking the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. If we look at verse 10, which is packed right in between 9 and 11, it says, and this commandment which was to result in life Prove to result in death for me. How does the law, how does the commandment of God, which says was meant to result in life, prove to result in death? God gives the law, and he gives the first, we mentioned it at the beginning, and he gives this command, do these things and live. All the people say, oh, we'll do them. And then you get Moses and God saying, Till this day, God has not given you a heart to receive, eyes to see, ears to hear. You're just not getting it. You just don't know. So now Jesus Christ comes and there's a sacrificial death, which really is pictured all throughout the Old Testament. You got the lamb sacrifice, Moses taking his son up on the mountain to offer him, and God says, nope, don't do it. I got a better one. My son's going to do it. So in that sacrificial death, that identification is the difference between life and death. The law proves to us we can't do it. There is a sense in which the man who comes to Christ understands that he cannot keep the law. 
So the law, which was meant to result in life to men, they see the law, oh, I'll do it. I'll make my way to heaven. And it results, it was meant to result in life, but it actually results in in death. Why? Christ had to die. In identification, it's done well. Otherwise, it results in my being condemned. I stand condemned before Almighty God, and God sends me to hell because I can't meet the holy standards of God by keeping the law. It ends in death. It reveals the death that has to take place. For the wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. But even though the, 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 the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, in verse 12, Paul goes on and says, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me. May it never be. Here we go. May it never be. God forbid. Rather, on the contrary, as he said before, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. What? To me. I see sin for what it is. If I'm able to look at the law and in seeing the law, I'm able to recognize what? Sin in me. Now when this takes place, when this groundwork from Romans 1 through 7 takes place right to verse 13, we're now being properly prepared for what takes place in verses 14 through 25. You know, what I can do, what I can't do. Normally, the way people are hurt by, by Romans 14 to 25, 7, 14 to 25, is by thinking and understanding, believing, receiving an idea, and the idea is they can't do it. Well, the truth of the matter is we can't do it, <laughs> you know. But God can And he has accomplished in Christ. Christ was tempted in every point as we were, yet without sin. He conquered sin, not only by being put to death for sin and taking away the penalty of our sin, but he he conquered sin in life. He lived a perfectly holy, righteous life. And as he dies, we are put to death in him which is where we begin in chapter 7, as in verse 2, for it says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. Here's where the law, taking its rightful place to reveal God's will, it's a good will, it's a holy will, it's a just will, but sinful men bound to it are bound to die. They're bound for eternal punishment. But when man is united with Christ, identified with Christ, in the heart and mind of God, all the sin is canceled out. It's erased. It was placed on Christ. It does not exist for men anymore. But that's not what we're dealing with in chapter 7. What we're dealing with is an actual sanctification that takes place in our hearts and in our minds as we live out our Christian life. 
So in verse 14, and we're not going to go into any further than this today, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. So now there's this whole, and that's the way I just read it in English. We're going to take a, a, re, a different view as we look through it on the next session at verses 14 through 25. But when men look at verses 14 to 25 normally, they see the flesh and they see the spirit. They sp- see what the spirit can't do, but most men don't look at, live in the spirit because they don't spend enough time on their knees. They don't pray. They don't understand that the exercising of faith is the only thing that gets us into the Spirit. Otherwise, we're prone to give in to the temptations of the flesh. What's it doing? It's crouching at the door. In the flesh is this this thing we are identifying as sin. It wants to rule over us. And the man who does not take his rightful place before God, that he must live by faith and by faith alone, that he can't energize the flesh, he can't manufacture holiness, he can't create in the flesh this standard by which God is pleased. He can't do that in the flesh. Then it's what you can and what you can't do, and man living in the flesh just decides, well, I just can't live this, and so I just go on, and we all go undefeated. Going undefeated is not living out the Christian life to the maximum. No person can bring forth fruit 100% living in the flesh. 30 maybe, but 100, no. A man who does not pray, realizing and taking his humble place before Almighty God, that I can't possibly fulfill God's law in the flesh. And so if I resign myself to failure, failure is what I will do. I will fail. Why? Because I'm not living by faith. The, The scripture is full of promises. The law In chapters 4, being justified by faith, in 5, being part of a godly race, being united with him through identification, 6 and 7, working through what it means to reckon ourselves dead, what it means to understand healthy, true doctrine, as in 6 and 7, 7 being released from the law, bound to Christ by identification, Now, all I have to do is take these promises home in my heart. I have to pray over them, meditate over them, believe them, get to the place where prayer gets turned into supplication. What supplication? It's crying out to God. I mean, it's one thing to say, thank you, Lord, for these thy gifts which you're about to receive. Amen. And it's another thing to take time meditating over the scripture until you come to a point of tears and you say, God, I can't do this. This is impossible. It's too hard for me. And at some point he says, I, I, I got your back. I know it's too hard for you. But I've made provision in my son. And as he's risen from the dead, he's there to pour out his life into your heart and into your mind. I'm, I'm able to fulfill all the requirements that I lay before you. So by the time he gets to Romans ta- chapter 12, and we read, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Wow. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. How does that happen? Acceptable to God. Well, he says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world. What's conformity to the world? It's living in the flesh, living like Cain. It's giving into temptation. It's just not taking uh, 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 it seriously. 
God's word seriously, that it's crouching at the door, and its desire is for us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You mean God's promises are true? You mean God tells the truth? You mean he's going to be true to his promises? Yeah, that's what God does. In the, in the beginning, Elohim, strong, faithful one, the one who keeps his promises, keeps his covenants, is true. So when he says, by the renewing of your mind, that's what he's talking about. He's taking this whole promises of God seriously so that we may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's how we get through chapter 7, verses 7 through 13, and next week, God will, Lord willing, verses 14 to 25. So that when we get through with verse 25 and we're ready to plow into chapter 8, we're now in a place where all of these promises come to life in the Spirit, so far as the Word of God is, in expressing things. They've been said here. They're said right here in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. And you know what? We're spiritual too if we're born again, if we if we've had our sins justified, we're not walking in the flesh, but we're walking in the spirit to some degree. If it's a pitiful degree, then when we stand before God at the Bema seat, then our life will be mostly made up of wood, hay, and stubble, and we're going to pass through the fire and we're going to lose it. We're going to lose the rewards. We're going to lose some of the joy that's accompanied with living a victorious life. If, on the other hand, we we spend sufficient time on our knees, we turn prayer into supplication, we cry out to God in humility, in brokenness, in repentance, then we'll, we'll find that our, we'll receive our rewards because we've been living our life out of gold, silver, and precious stone. I hope from the bottom of my heart that my hearers take this seriously and go on to live a life of gold, silver, and precious stone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warnings of your word. We thank you for the promises that give us something to do with the warnings. We thank you, Father, that you are a good and holy God. We thank you that there is nothing good that dwells within us, that we are of sinful flesh, until we come to the place of receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. If we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And that salvation we are thankful for because that salvation doesn't just mean the removal of our sins in the mind and heart of God. It means dealing with sin in our life. Lord, make that the reality in our minds and hearts even now. In the minds and hearts of my hearers, Bring them to a place of salvation if they have not received Christ. If they've received Christ, bring them to a place of victory so that they can know that God's word living within them produces a holy life. It produces righteousness. It produces justice. It produces a desire to love God. I pray that my hearers might know the love of God so that they might seek to love him back. And I ask these things for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.